Jody Vance with you. Thanks for being here on the 1st of February, 2022. It's been a long couple of years for people across British Columbia, across Canada, across the globe, but none have been harder hit than those in our care homes. We want to talk through what the guidance is like in this moment, in this Omicron moment where testing can be sketchy, even the best of tests aren't picking up some Omicron cases early enough in the infection cycle. It's very concerning about how we navigate these times while still keeping that connection with our loved ones, particularly those in long-term care. I want to connect now with a good friend of the program. He's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Terry Lake is on the line. Hi, Terry. Hi, Jody, and happy Lunar New Year. Thank you, Gange Fatshoi, to you and to our listeners. A year of the tiger is underway. It's time to clean house, clarify, and understand better as we move forward. That's all part of the Lunar New Year celebrations. And honoring our elders and our deities uh, is all part of this. Comes to wow. mind when, when thinking about taking care of our elders and how best to do that in this time of Omicron. Where are we at right now, Terry? Well, uh, clarity certainly would be nice, uh, Jody, because there's a, a lot of um, things that are not clear at the moment. But um, it, it does appear that the way we are managing COVID in long-term care uh, has changed quite a bit uh, from the Delta wave. The Omicron virus is less virulent. Uh, we have a good uh, defense, a good base of uh, high vaccination rates, including third doses among residents and um, you know many all, all staff have to be at least double vaccinated some have been triple vaccinated but that's not been mandated to this point so the effect of omicron is far different on long-term care homes than delta uh, was however um, it's been 31 days since you know visitation was restricted because of omicron um, and we still don't have written guidance from the ministry on how we are supposed to manage this. Now, not to say that we're completely in the dark, because health authorities have, you know, they meet with operators on a weekly basis. Um, but there's no overall sort of standard that is being used around the province uh, on how you manage or even what an outbreak is, let alone how you manage it. So it does cause some confusion. So can you explain that a little bit? Because there was a time where it was very clear what a definition of an outbreak at a long-term care home was. Uh, and and now it, it, it seems very, it, not loose, I don't know what the right term is. It's just confusing, these different circumstances. Yeah, it was very clear at the very beginning of COVID. Uh, basically, if you had one case, uh, an outbreak was declared. And then November of 2020, um, the definition changed uh, to... Uh, to say that it was either one staff or one um, resident, but evidence that the infection was uh, obtained, you know, in place at the home. Uh, so that went for a long, long time until really Omicron hit. And then all of a sudden we saw uh, homes with 12, 13, 14, 15 positive cases that were not declared in outbreak. And, um, you know, if you look at the BCCDC website, the definition is still the old definition. Uh, and there are, I think, uh, close to 50 uh, outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living that are listed there. But there are many, many, many more homes 
that have uh, a dozen or 13 or 14 positive cases that are not listed as outbreaks. So what appears to be happening is it's very situational and, and the decision making is really in the hands of the local medical health officers who go to the home and say, okay, um, there appears to be uh, COVID here, but it doesn't appear to be spreading like wildfire. So we're not going to shut down the home in terms of activities. We're not going to keep visitors out. Um, whereas in another case, they may say, look, we've got uncontrolled spread here. We really need to shut things down. And I think it's an effort to balance the quality of life versus the impact of the virus, which is absolutely appropriate. And I don't think anyone has an argument with that. It's just that it, it seems very unclear at times. And it's a, a source of confusion for operators and families. Yeah, you know what? And, and that is part of this greater puzzle, Terry, and you and I have talked before. It, it, it sort of comes in the same category, if you will, with the essential caregiver, or the visitor. Some jurisdictions, absolutely, it is part of the program. Everybody has an essential visitor, whereas in other jurisdictions, that isn't the case. Are you looking for sort of a, a, a far-reaching, provincial-wide um definition of what constitutes an outbreak in a long-term care home would that be helpful and and if so why well it it um it, it would be helpful but i but even having dr henry um say that look the way we're managing it is this and she's she's alluded to it at times in some of her news conferences uh saying that you know medical health officers make these decisions but i really uh, to have a document that goes out to all the operators from the ministry that actually, you know, has that kind of uh, philosophy, that approach, and here's how you manage under these situations, here's how you manage under other situations. Here is, you know, what we would recommend you use as criteria to determine who an essential visitor is, because the current definition on the BCCDC website hasn't changed, and it really is, um, you know, up to the operator to make a decision and put in the care plan that without that visit, um, the 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 benefits of the visit could not be replicated by staff. Now, Fraser Health, to their credit, uh, came out with a document last week, and they added this small part to their essential visitor, saying that clinical indicators are demonstrating a decline in function that can be attributed to the absence of a of a visitor. So, you mean right. that that is the essential role of an of a visitor? An essential visitor is to is to make sure that the physical and mental well-being of the person in care is maintained. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, you don't need to wait until someone's lost 10 pounds uh, to say that they need to have someone there uh, to keep them healthy. You know, Terry, there's uh, so much to the... Um the care and consideration of our elders, particularly those in a long-term care home. Is there one call to action that you have as the chief executive officer of the BC Care Providers Association in this moment? Is there something that would be helpful to you? I see Isabel McKenzie, the seniors advocate saying, you know, we need to go back to what the definition was, period. Would that be helpful? Well, I think that clarity would be helpful. So let's, let's have a definition, but then let's recognize that the response to the definition may be different in different situations. And then that, that would add clarity. Um, simplifying the definition of essential visitor um, is something we've been calling for for a very long time. That would be helpful. Making sure there are rapid tests available to make sure that everyone who wants to visit can do so safely by undergoing a rapid test 
And yeah. you know, I, lots of lots of staff members would welcome uh, testing, uh, rapid testing of asymptomatic staff because they don't want to take the virus home to their families. But we're not allowed to test asymptomatic staff. So, you know, all of these things create anxiety and confusion. And you know, as we uh, enter February, which is really when we celebrate families, um, families uh, with loved ones in care, and the families of essential workers at the front lines looking after those right. uh, members, uh, family members, really need to be recognized. And, and anything we can do to, to, to reduce the anxiety, increase opportunities, to keep families connected, uh, would be very, very welcome. Terry, is always a great conversation. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Jody. Welcome back. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. It is time for our health series. And today, a fascinating topic that I know will resonate with so many of us. It's talking about mental health and aging and how seniors, exponentially more than maybe any sector of our community, have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Really happy to welcome Professor Teddy DeCosco to the program. He is the SFU Professor of Mental Health and Aging and rather an expert on the subject matter of how we connect with our seniors and keep our seniors from feeling isolated in this pandemic. Professor, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Let's go into your background first. Why did you get into this particular slice of mental health um, and and aging, and, and how did that unfold for you in the early days? Sure, yeah. So I have a very sort of long-standing history in uh, my interest in mental health and aging that actually began when I was 11, when my my uh, paternal grandmother started exhibiting some symptoms um, of cognitive impairment. And this, I found this really fascinating that you know one grandparent was facing these life-altering deficits, and the other three were you know, um, totally functional in every other capacity. And so that piqued my interest, and I started volunteering in a long-term care facility when I was 12, and then it's really sort of snowballed from there, and just being able to observe the different trajectories that people have throughout the aging process and how looking at the differences in health and well-being over the life course and why some people are happy and healthier for longer and some people just aren't. That was really sort of the, the genesis of my interest in the field, and I'm still here you know, several decades later, and so there we go. I think that's so fascinating. At 11, you knew that that was something that was going to be your motivation. And things have obviously changed over the decades. I mean, things have changed over the last two years alone. What are we learning or what do you think our biggest lessons are um, since you really in earnest began your um, your studies on this? What, how much have we evolved to this point and where do you see us headed? Yeah, I think, that, you know, uh, one of the biggest things that's changing uh, is the interface between older adults and technology or population in general and technology. And it's really, I think, the last two years have catalyzed that uh, dynamic in a big way. So it's a, I think the way things are headed is that it's going to be much more important for people to find new and inventive ways to stay, uh, to stay socially connected. And I think that technology is a great vehicle for that. But unfortunately, there are lots of areas where this the connection between uh, the social connection between people via technology breaks down, whether it be digital literacy or just access to these types of technology or the capacity and the interest in using them. So I think that really that's an area that's expands. 
Sorry, Sorry yeah, d- didn't mean to step on you there, but that's really where it comes into play with somebody whose cognitive ability wanes to the degree that they can no longer really process that I'm speaking to my family via FaceTime. The The mental health of of our seniors when they're in a long-term care home or they're, you know, in a in an outbreak situation, let's say, then they have to quarantine in their room by themselves and their families are, are incredibly concerned about their well-being. Are there tools that we have learned that we can put into play here? Um, I don't know the answer to this question, to be honest with you, but I know there are so many families who are incredibly worried about their loved ones being sort of sequestered or, or kept away from that connection that is so important. Any advice there? Yeah, I think that, you know, trying to be creative in the ways that you connect. And, you know, it doesn't mean that to necessarily be via video conferencing call. You know, it can be just picking up a phone. It could be sending a letter. It could be any type of social uh, connectedness that you can foster. Um, it's good. It's better than nothing would be my the biggest takeaway. Um, but also I think for people's own mental health, things that they can do for themselves, there's no sort of, um, magic pill for it. But the closest approximation that we have for that is physical activity. I think one of the biggest things that people can do on their own for their own mental health is physical activity. And if you can incorporate a, a, a component of social connection, like going for a walk with somebody, um, that's really a great way to maximize the potential for positively impacting your mental health. Right. Keep on moving. We're with Professor Teddy D. Costco, SFU Professor of Mental Health and Aging, and talking about how our seniors' mental health has been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. I like what you said about writing a letter. Writing a letter or making one of those photo books that maybe is a bit of a story of the family, what you're doing right now, or even just a, a bunch of pictures that you print off at the drugstore that you can drop off. We can get creative about connection while we get through what we hope is the final chapter of, of being sort of locked away and, and told to stay away from one another in this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. What about music? Yeah, you know, I think that there's, um, there's uh, a whole realm of, of uh, mental health fostering therapies known as like reminiscence therapy, where it's, you can, t- if you can, Play some music that brings back memories, even in um, different states of cognitive impairment. Playing music that people are familiar with uh, might bring back some old memories. And uh, there's definitely some work around that where music therapy as a tool for fostering mental health can be something as well. It could be remind one of the, sort of the good old days or specific memories, so that sort of thing. So I definitely think that's uh, an avenue one to pursue as well. That may be a little bit of that technology that's easy to use if you can set it up in a way that you just simply press play. What about, Professor, this is a tough one because I'm sure it varies from person to person, but generally speaking, if if your elder, if your loved one who might be in a long-term care home or assisted living gets anxious when you depart as the essential uh, visitor, is, is there a way to sort of manage that and help with that? Is there something that you can say or a position you can take um, that that might ease their worry? Is there a way to sort of tackle that? You know, that is, uh, as you point out, like a really tough question. And I think that it, it really comes down to the individual. And you really need to sort of rely on like the rapport you have with that individual and, you know, what their their preferences are like. But, you know, highlighting the fact that this is, you're going to contri- continue to try and foster this relationship and in any way possible um, is important. But as I say, you know, it really comes down to the individual and just knowing um, 
knowing the, the the person and knowing what their sort of characteristics are like and just trying to sort of mitigate <laughs> that as much as possible. Right. Mitigate the buildup. For some, it's like the long goodbye could be the most painful thing when it just like, hey, I'll be back in a second would work just as well uh, if it doesn't um, spike the, uh, the the worry and concern that you might not be back anytime soon. So it's a tough time and really appreciate your insights and, and your perspective on this, Professor. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Got to remind you, in-person update with Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. 1.30 p.m. today. You will hear it right here on The Jill Bennett Show. So make sure you're tuned in at 1.30 today. Keith Baldry saying that we can expect to get updated on hospitalization numbers and how things are evolving with Omicron and uh, certainly something you want to tune in for. Again, you'll hear it on The Jill Bennett Show later today at 1.30, that in-person briefing with Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. We spent a lot of time talking about mandates and truck convoys and what have you. We're going to shift gears and turn toward the majority of Canadians who are getting vaccinated, who are getting the calls, a lot of people getting the booster shot these days. And and in fact, our good friend Eric Chapman, CKNW show contributor, uh, was one of those people who received their booster shot yesterday. And he joins me now on the phone. Eric, first, how are you feeling? Oh... sorry it's not funny other than you're really not Uh, it's hilarious what else what else can you do but laugh i mean there's nothing there's nothing going i feel uh today i'm just a giant ache like my body aches and um my kid you know when you your kidneys hurt like in the back like my kidneys i I hurt because you you told me about this yesterday that it would happen it's just time different. Like I'm really cold and I'm shaking. And so I'm like, my core is like sore. So I'm getting an awesome workout. Your abs are going to be fantastic. <laughs> right. I'm all okay. of a two pack. Yes. Go. So first and second doses, you had what? Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer, my first Pfizer. One, yeah. July or June sometime. And then, yeah. And my last one was May 26th. And so I got the, uh, the call to get my booster last week, I think it was. And yes, and I didn't know what it was going in, and I had been told that it could be pretty random, but most likely Moderna was going to be the thing. So yeah, two Pfizer's and a Moderna was my booster. Okay, so I want let, let's alert our listeners here. We're going to talk yeah. about um, Eric's experience uh, yesterday in, in receiving his booster dose. And if you yeah. have just recently received your booster dose and have a tale to tell whether or not it was, for me, Pfizer, Pfizer, Pfizer. I'm three Pfizers. I've oh. never had any symptoms of anything after any shot. I'm like sitting there going, you know, anything, nothing. Yeah. Oh Whereas, yeah, brag about it. Yeah. No, but my partner, Brian, <laughs> no, yeah, had yeah. his third and he was knocked down. His first two were fine and his third one he got knocked down. Everybody's well, different. So we want to share the experience here because the choice to get vaccinated, the the need to protect ourselves and our community is huge here. And certainly yeah. as we as we dive into what you went through yesterday, Eric, we want to make it known right up front. You would yeah. do this every day and twice oh, every, on Sunday. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Every, every Like, I feel like a bag of toes being dragged behind a horse carriage through the desert. <laughs> but I would oh, do this every day if I had to, to keep people safe. And to your point, Jody, and this, will, uh, lo- this is a little foreshadowing here, as I looked up at the customer service representative while I was on the floor in Safeway, she told me that a large amount, um, shout out to the McDonald's and Broadway Safeway, by the way, a large amount of their um, employees have been totally 
just wiped out for about two days. So this is not a, a new thing. A lot of people are, yeah, definitely experiencing this. Right. So 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, if you want to share your experience and how you got better or how you feel about it or, you know, are you hesitant about your booster because your first two doses were difficult? Let's talk that through as well. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. Now, Eric, walk us through. You walked into the Safeway (laughs) at West Broadway and McDonald to get your booster and... Oh, it was 1.20 p.m. on a Monday morning, Jody. The sun was shining, the birds were out, and as I strolled in, the smell of rosemary filled the room. No... Uh, yeah, it was one thirty. I went in, um, I signed the paper, I sat down, and as you know, I have a needle fear already, but I was doing, I felt really good about that, actually. I was doing breathing and some mindfulness, and just, so anybody who has a, a fear of needles that's listening, I find this very helpful, so it might help you. Just plant your feet, take deep breaths, and I'm in the, uh, I'm about to get the shot, you know, I was recognizing everything in the room, and so she put it in, and I felt not a whole lot of it. It wasn't too bad. So I was really happy because that's the part I hate and that the fear is. And so immediately after I felt great, my arm was a little sore and I had talked to the pharmacist who gave me the shot for about five minutes as she waited for her printer to get working so I could get my vaccine records printed out. Excuse me. And so we talked for about five, six minutes and then She's like, you have about 10 or 15 minutes left to, to wait outside as they make you wait when you get your shot. And so I was like, yeah, no worries. And so I went out and I just sat down and there was another gentleman there who had a lovely English accent and he was waiting for his shot. And I sat down and I'm just sitting there, you know, I'm like, I'm on my phone. It's a minute or two later. Nothing. I feel totally fine. And then I'm kind of out of breath even right now, just as a thing that's happening to me, like I'm shortness of breath is coming on quickly. I ran up the stairs and I got got short of breath, but I was sitting there. And Jody, I swear, I swear, I said in my head as it started, I was like, why do we have to sit here for 20 minutes? This is silly. Nothing's going to happen to me. I, I should just get up and go. And I didn't. But as soon as I thought that, I just had this flush of just dizziness. And I started to sweat. I started to sweat out of every, my eyeballs were sweating. The top of my feet, I felt like a hobbit. Like, I didn't know what was happening. My hands my, under my nails, was I was just sweating. I didn't know I could sweat this much. And I'd been in an infrared sauna. And so I, and it just hit me, and then I felt dizzy. And then uh, I, I'm giving you the five seconds here. Something I'm not going to be too descriptive, but something here is graphic. So I'm just giving you a heads up now if you're listening. Um, I felt like I was going to both ends in the middle of the Safeway pharmacy, Jody. Mm. Mm. And so I felt dizzy, and so... I turned to the gentleman beside me. I said, sir, I'm having a reaction. Please grab the pharmacist. He looked at me, said, no problem. He stood up and he went. And I just kind of felt myself like I was going, could pass out. So I just kind of gently laid down on the Safeway floor and curled up in the fetal position. Oh, my goodness. And, and so and I felt horrible and the room was spinning and I was sweating. Like there was probably like a, a pool around me where I laid on the floor and they put the carts all around me and blocked everything off and everybody was shopping carts. And, yeah. Shopping, carts shopping carts. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So I'm lying on the Safeway floor like, yay, science. I still believe. And then when they called yeah. the ambulance and I had a discussion with the paramedics and things like that. And they kept wanting me to send in an ambulance. I'm like, please don't send an ambulance. Just give me some time. And so I stood and I had discussions and it was agreed upon me. And we decided a way for me to get home in the safest way possible. And I did that. And then I got home and, 
and it, it, it got slowly better. Um, I lost my well, I didn't lose it, but my vision went really blurry for about an hour or two as soon as I got back. But that was that was my tale. That's a little <laughs> bit scary. The vision, the vision being blurred, but then now yeah. you're kind of feeling like you have the flu, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm achy. Um, I, I feel like I starred in the classic '87 Stallone movie, Over the Top about a truck driving arm wrestler. Like my arm is so sore and yeah. I'm achy. And yeah, I feel like I, got the, I have the sniffles and I have a, a headache. So yeah, it's like a head cold sort of, I feel like. And it's just waves of just a, kind of just exhaustion. I'm just exhausted. Yep. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith with my good friend, Eric Chapman, CKNW show contributor. Today, you're more of a guest though, Eric. You're talking about your experience in getting boosted yesterday mm-hmm. with Moderna after two Pfizer's for your first and second dose. You went Moderna and you're feeling it today. You got the chills. Mm-hmm. You're, you know, you're feeling like you got hit a little uh, by this, but you're, you're positive and you're, you're feeling good about the fact that you did get your booster shot, yes? Oh, 100%. I got, oh, and Jody, yeah, I, I didn't get hit. I was in front of one of those trucks headed to Ottawa. That's what I got. That's what I feel like I got hit with. But yes, no, and again, I just want to reiterate, like, and I think that's the theme here. No matter the little bit of discomfort that I'm feeling or have felt over the last two days, even as I felt like my stomach was boiling yesterday in the middle of this weird reaction, whatever it so was, at the vaccine or whatever it was, it could have been no caffeine, as we discussed, whatever it was. This little bit of discomfort is totally worth saving someone's grandma from getting COVID because that's all I think about. So a little bit of discomfort, you know, a little, and, and as a caller mentioned earlier, a li- just a little bit more time we have here. We're seeing the light now. We really are. And we a little really bit are. longer of this, you know, I, we can put up with it. And I'm happy to if it means keeping people from getting sick. All right, we got a few minutes here for a very full phone board. Glad to have our listeners tuned in and wanting to call in with your experience. We, as I said, have a very full phone board. So tell us your story. Uh, we start with uh, Barbara in Cloverdale. Welcome, Barbara. Thanks, Jody. So so happy that you've taken my call, and so happy to hear Eric's voice on my radio. Um, <laughs> Thanks. I am a double <laughs> a double AstraZeneca girl, and. Um, Took some hits from family and friends were like, oh, don't take AstraZeneca, but happy to do it because it was the first one that was offered to me because I'm in that age group. Mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, Pfizer came up for booster. Actually, they gave us a choice. My husband took Moderna, got a sore arm. I got Pfizer and felt like I'd been hit by a truck mm. uh, for probably three days. Um, just flu-like um, no energy whatsoever, um, but happy to do it, and I'll do it again. And my my 20-something-year-old daughter and boyfriend who had to go to Ontario for school after they got their second shot here had a hard time finding Pfizer there. And in Ontario, you have to sign a waiver if you're under 30 and take Moderna, and mm-hmm. she didn't want to do that. So I sat on, the, I was on the Internet last week, going shoppers by shopper by shopper's drug mart, finding a location that had Pfizer, and she got it in three hours. And any reaction? Nope, nothing. The The kids had no reactions. All the 20-somethings, nothing. My 14-year-old um, first dose, he was a little bit headachy. That's it. Right. Same same with mine. I like that. Thanks, Barbara. Good storytelling there. We got a lot of mm-hmm. intel from Barbara there. I'll say my 14-year-old son, uh, no issues. First dose was absolutely fine. Second dose, he was a little bit headachy as well. Let's go to Chilliwack now and check in with Maureen. Welcome, Maureen. 
Hi. Um, my first shot was AstraZeneca, a little bit sore. My second shot was Moderna, a little bit sore. But about three weeks after my Moderna shot, I had a reaction where my mouth was on fire. And it was so weird. So I went to um, my doctor. She had no idea what it was. I went to my dentist. They said it's a very rare thing. Didn't know what it was caused from. Didn't know how to fix it. I ended up at a specialist downtown. And he said it's called burning mouth syndrome. He said it's probably a reaction from your um, COVID shot. And get ready, because when you get your booster, it will come back again. So he did give me some medication. It definitely helped. But I just had my booster about four weeks ago, and it's back again. Oh, Maureen. And when I say my mouth is on fire, it's on fire. It's 24-7, but the medication is giving it some relief. I okay, found well, that interesting. Good. Wow, that Which, is a really great piece of this. But it's interesting, you know, our collective experience here. And Eric, like your boil, boiling stomach when you yeah. told me yesterday on the phone, when you're like, I don't know what it was. It was like, it's like my inside of my stomach was boiling. Like, this is what this is what our experience in this weird time seems to be filled with, mm-hmm. right? Everybody's. Mm-hmm. Everybody's experience is unique. We're in the same storm, but very different vessels in our bodies. Let's continue down the phone board here, Eric. We got so many people on the line. Yeah. David in Surrey is up next. David, welcome. Yeah, oh, it's, it's there been a he is. trip. Uh, it's been a trip. My, uh, are you there? <laughs> yes. Go ahead, David. Sorry. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, I got AstraZeneca because you know they said first come first serve is what you get. And when they gave me the shot, everybody was asking me how I did. And I went, I think they gave me a placebo because I don't feel a thing. So I got my second shot, AstraZeneca, because you know that's what you do. And again, I had no reaction, nothing. I thought, I'm in the placebo group again. And when I went and got my booster three weeks ago, they give you the choice. And I said, I have no idea. And so they gave me Moderna. And some people are having a reaction. And I'm like, man, three times lucky. I got nothing, nothing. So I have no idea if I'm actually second shot and felt crappy for four days and uh christmas we got covid and so i had two weeks of you know sleeping 13 hours a day no interest losing weight all that kind of stuff because i just felt wiped out uh, my wife got long covid and oh, no. she's been docked by the doctor to stay off work until the end of february she got her booster um on sunday i think it was and her arm is killing her. You can't even touch it. And so it's like I've got all kinds of things happening in my family. So it's, that uh, is really I'm something. glad about it. I, everybody yeah. get your shot, for goodness sakes. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think I'm on a placebo plan. I've got nothing. <laughs> you and me both. And Jim, who's a regular listener, emailed me and said, Jody, both my wife and I had three shots of Pfizer. Absolutely no reaction from any shot. You, uh, David, I'm same boat. I I told that to Eric yesterday, and he's like, oh, thanks, you're bragging now. 
And I, you know, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying I feel for people that are getting hit like you are, uh, Eric, and, and certainly your reaction yesterday. I'm glad everything is all right. And at the end of the day here, as David in Surrey mentioned right there, we just need to get vaccinated. Let's go to Andrew in Maple Ridge. Andrew, welcome to the show. What is your COVID-19 booster or vaccine story? Well, actually, actually, I have a quick question. Um, I'm just wondering if you have statistics on how many serious reactions there have actually been. Like, um, I was listening to the jazz show, and a woman called in and said that um, uh, her um, uh, son's hockey team, two of the players got heart issues off it. Now, we have heart issues in our family, so that's my concern. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith and uh, want to give you the heads up here. We are going to open the phone lines again for this 30 minutes. We've done full hour long uh, call ins with our guest, Jason Tetro, uh, and we're going to do as much as we can today in 30 minutes. So I want to open up the phone lines right now. Jason Tetro is a microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. And I know there were a lot of people on uh, talking about the reaction to the to the vaccines and the boosters, and and some had no side effects whatsoever, and others had some pretty significant ones. And there were a lot of people hanging on the phone boards there. If you want to ask Jason Tetro uh, about your scenario, your situation, or if you have any hesitancy surrounding uh, your booster dose because you had a reaction to your first or second dose, six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number six zero four. 280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. As I mentioned, we're going to speak with Jason for the next 30 minutes. I'm always happy to welcome you to the program, Jason. Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's great to be joining you again. Now, I reached out to you yesterday when I found out that I was filling in here for Mike today. And one of the things I really wanted to talk through with you, because I feel like this is a conversation that's happening at kitchen tables and when out for a, a walk with a friend trying to stay socially connected, when people are talking about what's the next phase going to be like when Dr. Henry starts to reference the fact that we're going to have a gentler spring or summer or that she wants to get out mm-hmm. of the measures business. Like, what will it look like when health measures and restrictions are lifted? Will we be will we be trusted to continue doing what we know works? Well, that's it. Is um, the first thing is the word you're going to hear probably more than anything else is gradual. And, and I know that lots of people would just like to end it right now, uh, but it is going to be over over certain um, you know time frames based on certain indicators. But we're all used to that, right? We, we saw that before. And in yeah. honesty, even though it's February 2022, let's look back to August 2021, when we all thought we were finally past the pandemic and then Delta showed up, right? So what we're probably going to be doing is for the next little while, we're going to be um, seeing some of the openings like we've seen in the past. And then they're going to be uh, sort of tested out. Let's see if, you know, we see increases in hospitalization, increases in ICUs, that type of thing. And then we'll open up a little bit more. I think the difference between now and then and what happened before is we all know how to do the ABCs. We've talked about it on this show and on many other shows for the last 18 months. You protect your airway, you stick to your bubbles, and you know who your cohorts or your contacts happen to be, right? And so that will become a, a bit more of an onus on us to be able to make sure that we are doing the right thing. So Jason, if I'm reading you right, I mean, 
we all also are very aware of how the flu is transmitted, how mm-hmm. Norwalk can take over an environment. I mean, but prior to the pandemic, Norwalk is what would shut down a cruise ship or a restaurant yeah. situation and, and what have you. So we learn washing our hands, the ABCs, when you talk about, um, mm-hmm. for those who maybe don't know what your ABCs are, um, reiterate, please. Sure. So A stands for airway. And this actually also works for norovirus, even though it's gastrointestinal. Um, And what you're doing is you're protecting your airway from others. Now, in the past, with flu and colds for the last um, decade and a half, I've been saying use a scarf, uh, use a neck tube or something along those lines. Now we know how to use masks, so you can use a mask. The second is the B, which is the bubble. And what that means is you want to be hanging around people you trust immunologically, not necessarily, you know, um, in, in sociologically. And the reason you're doing that is because then you know you're not really transferring over un- or hidden uh, infections from one person to another. And then finally, the third one is contact. So if you're going to work, if you're going to school, if you're going to the mall, right, you want to yeah. go to places that you're familiar with. Because if you start going outside of that, then what's going to happen is you're going to have contacts with individuals you don't know. And the other thing is, I think this is the one thing that's important is that for the longest time, the reason we've had to deal with common colds and the flu is that we believe in presenteeism. COVID stopped all of that. And if we continue stopping presenteeism, we're going to be in a much better place. If you're sick, stay home. If you're sick, yeah, stay home. If you have a sore throat and you still feel like, oh, I could probably go to work, don't. That's where we're at now. No. And I'm the worst offender. Back in the day, I mean, I, I would, my mom had a thing where it was like, if you're walking and talking, you're working, you know, and yeah. that's kind of how so many of us were raised. And that's been the expectation in the workforce that you will just continue to come to work. And that has just shifted now for the greater good. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call if you have a question or comment with Jason Tetro, who is a microbiologist who has a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. He's also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Um, I want to get to the callers in just a second, but Jim sent me a note that said, the latest variant, BA2, that's entered the country, mm-hmm. is supposedly more transmittable than Omicron. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, it actually is Omicron. Um, so what's happening is now we're starting to see sub-lineages of initial lineages. I know that sounds really geeky, but the fact is, is that you've got Omicron. You had Omicron 1, which is what got everybody all upset because it was spreading around like wildfire. Now you've got sort of Omicron 2, which has a collection of different mutations. However, much like every other lineage and variant in the past, if it doesn't get inside of you, it's not going to hurt you. And I think that's the thing that we should be talking about. Let's forget about all the variants, all right? Let's talk about how we can prevent us from getting even the original Delta, Omicron 1, BA1, BA2, whatever it may be. You know, that's what we should be talking about moving forward. Right. Let's let's all give up our uh, hard-earned epidemiology degrees that we got in the last two years by just being tuned in. We're going too deep into it. Well, absolutely. And the fact is, is that if you want to talk about an E to K mutation, especially in the spike protein receptor binding domain, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. But at the end of the day, is that going to help you prevent COVID when you're out at the shopping mall? No, 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 it won't. Let's go to the phone line. 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call. We start with Chris in Kamloops. Welcome, Chris. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just, I'm not sure if this is going to be the, the right type of question for you considering your background, but I got my second dose. Uh, I had Pfizer both times. I got my second dose last July. And then in uh, August, I had heart palpitations pretty much every night um, for about four or five weeks. And by the time I got an ECG done, it wasn't able to pick up whether I had myocarditis or not. Um, mm-hmm. But essentially, it certainly seems like it fit all the parameters of that. And I've been eligible for my booster for about three three weeks now. And I'm a little bit concerned about going in just because, I mean, obviously it cleared up if the ECG didn't pick it up and it wasn't too major. I didn't have a lot of chest pains or anything like that. I just had the regular heartbeat that was happening uh, kind of daily at, at a couple different times. So the only research I've seen online so far sort of talks about um, from CDC and some other websites that they just don't have enough um, information about that and they don't recommend that you get your booster until there's further information which is a little bit spooky so I didn't know if you could yeah. comment on that at all yeah um, so what I can tell you is that when we've looked at the cases of myocarditis I actually have a friend who's a cardiologist who's doing clinical trials on this um, one of the things that we've noticed is that it tends to happen more frequently in the first shot and in the second shot if you had it sooner than eight weeks. Okay. Now, as for the booster, it's going to be six months on. And the problem right now is we're not sure if it's resetting in terms of the um, inflammation, um, the, the numbers or the, the, the molecules, if you will, are things like, uh, we call these IP10 and IL15. Again, it's just Greek, right? Um, so we're just trying to figure out what type of markers are respective of someone who has an increased risk for myocarditis. That doesn't help you. I get it. What you might want to do is have a chat with your general practitioner, your GP, um, or if you do have a specialist, um, have a chat with that individual and discuss what would probably be the best thing. Um, because if you do go for the booster, uh, they'll probably want to be monitoring you anyways. Uh, this is all interesting information that we all need to know so that we can better predict what's going to happen in the future. Does that help you, Chris? Uh, it, it did. I mean, the only thing I'll say with doctor's feedback was um, in this order twice he told me was to get a different, like, so get the Moderna this time or to not get it. It was in that exact order and twice during the conversation he said the same thing. Yeah, well, the reason the Moderna is because it's a half dose. Um, so it will not have the same effects as the original dose that you would have gotten in the first or second. Um, or just don't get it at all and stick to the ABCs, which is also an option. Um, and again, because we now know um, that Omicron is not as dangerous as Delta for a number of reasons, um, you should be able to a, avoid it. And if you don't avoid it, hopefully there won't be any issues. Right, because dose one and dose two don't just go away, right? Like you've been double dosed, so you do have some protection and you don't have the underlying health issue and you're not over the age of 70. Am I guessing correctly by the tone of your voice? Thanks. All right, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. Open phones for Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens. And Jason, just before we get to the phone lines, I want to read this one Mm -hmm. email Gordon sent to me uh, because we were just before the break, we were talking about myocarditis um, and the the heart issues that have been associated in rare instances um, with some vaccines for COVID-19. And Gord said, My wife was complaining about shortness of breath after her second vaccine, so she saw her doctor. After two opinions, it was determined that she had a heart condition from birth. 
and her surgeon said could result in sudden death. She had successful heart surgery two weeks ago, and I believe we found another good reason to get vaccinated. Uh, he also went on to say, great to hear you and Jason on the air together. That That's from Gord. But it's interesting how we might be all sort of piling anything that ails us into this one bin. We, we need to be mindful of that, right? Well, absolutely. But the other thing is that, um, you know, I've had this discussion with uh, my colleague, who's the cardiologist, and it's so funny because I'm like, are you picking up any other sort of um, rare genetic issues or perhaps you're seeing something that hasn't been um, picked up in terms of diagnostics? And he's like, we are looking for that. And we may end up having a statistically significant higher rate of detection of other heart problems as a result of people thinking they had a COVID-19 adverse event. Does that necessarily mean that you should go get yourself vaccinated? There's a lot of other reasons for doing it then. (laughs) Maybe I'll find a rare disease. Maybe I'll find that birth defect that I have in my heart. Let's go to yeah, the phones, that, Mike. That, no, 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 good reason. <laughs> no, Mike and Surrey, you're up first. Thanks for hanging on yeah. the line for so long. I appreciate uh, it. Welcome. Well, I appreciate uh, you guys taking the calls from us. Uh, this this question really involves vaccines, uh, and my my question is, you know, we've developed these vaccines about two years ago, and some of them are better mm-hmm. than others. We sort of have pushed AstraZeneca kind of off of the the list and we kind of stick with Pfizer and Moderna and are, is, are these people that are making vaccines, do you think that they're back there trying to make them better sort of saying, you know, we really still have a lot of people getting COVID because even though they're vaccinated, you know, is there, are they working on maybe making them better? Is, is that, do you think that's going on behind the scenes or what happens with vaccines when they're developed? I assume somebody must be trying to make a better one. They are, for sure. They are, yeah. Yeah. And right now, it actually looks like we may even have an open access universal vaccine coming within the next two to three years. Um, It's uh, called the uh, ferritin nanoparticle. Um, It's really interesting if you want to Google it. Um, But right now, what's happening is we understand that the original lineage is no longer the the circulating one. So the vaccine obviously is not going to cover it 100%. That being said, we do know that with a third booster, you are going to protect yourself upwards of um, 90% against Delta and about 40 to 60% against Omicron. Um, But yeah, of course, we want to be making better ones. The problem is the same problem we have with the flu, right? It takes nine months to be able to go from, oh, we're going to do this to actually the rollout. And Remember, these these variants are rolling through us in a matter of weeks, not nine months. So at the end of the day, by the time you have a Delta vaccine, which would be theoretically May of this year, we're not going to hear about Delta. That's the big problem we're facing right now. All right. Let's get in as many callers as we can here as we continue down the phone board. Brian and Coquitlam, you're up next. Welcome, Brian. Hey, Jody. I always love catching you on the radio. Thanks, man. Um, I want to take this back to the issue of working while sick. One of the issues that wasn't, isn't really fixable and wasn't fixed with the new law for sick days is there's a lot of businesses that can't have anyone go home sick because they don't have any extra employer, employees to fill those spots. Yeah. So they encourage and ask their employees to come in sick. My partner suffered that situation with the restaurant he works at. They don't mm-hmm. have someone to replace them. So it's, please, come in sick because we need you. So yeah. even though we put in that... Uh, Sick day stuff, we still have that problem that employers mm-hmm. want people to come in sick because they can't open otherwise. 
Absolutely agree with you. And the fact is, is that while we are going to be using the word gradual over the next six to eight months, I would much rather hear the word um, redundancy and not with respect to COVID, but with respect to people who essentially are working so that there's always a backup. If you don't have a backup, then you can't, you have to use presenteeism. And that's the, yeah. the world that we live in. We need to, we need to get rid of presenteeism altogether. Jody Vance in for Mike. He will be back in the chair tomorrow. Uh, very much looking forward to this next discussion. Um, ever since Max Cameron, a contact of mine, a professor out at the University of British Columbia, I reached out to Max yesterday about civil disobedience and protests, where the line might be drawn. And he recommended our next guest as somebody who could speak to this specifically. Thrilled to welcome Professor Kimberly Brownlee to the program, a professor of philosophy at UBC and Canada Research Chair in Ethics and Political and Social Philosophy. Thank you for being with us, Professor. Good morning, Jody. Good to be with you. So when you're watching uh, what we're seeing unfolding with regard to protests, obviously the trucker protest is part of the equation here, but there are others to reference, whether it's Extinction Rebellion or it's a protest that Greta Thunberg is doing, or if it's a Black Lives Matter protest, or if it's any protest happening in any way, shape or form. Can you explain what the parameters are of a peaceful protest? So... Um, there, there are legal protests and illegal protests, and illegal protests can be peaceful. So violence is actually a really tricky idea to pin down. Uh, if if a, a pinch might be violent, mm. me catapulting a teddy bear at a police officer might be deemed violent. Um, us breaking a chain link fence together might be violent. And so, so one issue is not necessarily do we want to say it's violent or not, but how much harm does it do? An ambulance worker's strike could do much more harm uh, than you and I breaking a chain link fence. Mm. So you know, just you referenced the blockade uh, in Alberta right now, the objections to some of the COVID rules. A blockade that prevents essential services from getting through is, is much more potentially harmful than some non-peaceful protests. That's happening at the southern border of Alberta, Coots, there when it, where the border crosses into Montana, and there are literally truckers trapped in Montana who are, have no food, are running out of fuel, can't get north across the border because there is a blockade there. And there is conversation about how authorities are looking to tow vehicles that are blocking that route, as well as make arrests if need be. So when it comes to what's happening in Ottawa where um, some are saying, hey, there are a few bad actors here while others are peacefully protesting. When it comes to a protest, is it judged on a whole or is it an individual? I honestly legitimately don't know the answer to this. If there are a few <laughs> people who are, who are really breaking laws and yet others standing right beside them who are not, is it a pick and choose or can they use the, the people who are breaking the laws to shut the whole thing down? It's a good question because you, you need to be visibly different. Uh, if, you, if you want to be taken seriously, if you're trying to have a dialogue with policymakers, you need to do, use methods that are going to get your reasons across. And if, you're, if your mechanism is too, too loud, too distracting, um, if you do resort to violence, it does often change the conversation. The police have to use more severe response techniques. Law enforcement can be less friendly. 
So if, if you want to try and communicate, make sure you look different. You know, we are sitting quietly over here. We're trying to get the ear of government. Okay, that's a really important piece of this, because there are those who want to argue that the message that is happening with the truck convoy, I'll use as the most obvious example of right now, but this is not an attack on that protest in any way, shape or form. It is when a message becomes somewhat diluted or further down the path of that taken over by another motive that that might be at play here. Um, Is there is there something in in a ethical sense that that can impact what a peaceful protest then turns into? I, I, I'm not sure if that yeah. question makes sense. Do you yeah, know what I mean? No, no, that, no, that helps. So, so you know, if we think of the, you know, the ones that, that, are, that are famous in, in you know, if you think of recent history, so the, you know, Nelson Mandela as an advocate and, and Mahatma Gandhi and yeah. Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, they were, they were individual people and you could look at them and see that they were conscientious. They were sincere and serious and they used very restrained Methods. So Rosa Parks, you know, she, she sat on a bus in, yeah. in segregated Alabama and said, you know, my, my feet are weary, but my soul is at rest. And that simple act of refusing to get in line with the law was, was, was startling and it sort of reverberated out into much larger protests. But you could look at her as an agent and judge her reasons. It's much harder when you have a diffuse collective. Many, many people are sometimes there for the camaraderie. Some dissenters are actually career dissenters. They'll go through protest after protest, and they'll be somewhat loose about the kinds of causes they'll defend because they really value the community of protesting as opposed to the cause. So, so if you want your protest to be effective, if you want to say, I'm actually, this is an exercise of my, of my rights, you know, that I have a moral right to step outside the law to, in a very constrained way, object to a policy, you need to be doing it in a way where you can be identified as an agent, where you can make your reasons clear. That is just so well said. I feel that, that that's epiphanal. Uh, we're with Professor Kimber- Kimberly Brownlee, uh, Professor of Philosophy, UBC, and Canada Research Chair in Ethics and Political and Social Philosophy. And Professor, when it comes to how the Ferry Creek old growth protectors who sat on the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge yesterday morning, uh, blocking the traffic um, and, and, and making their point, holding their signs, holding their space, being very clear in in what they what their messaging is, and yet then being, you know, taken into custody because they are blocking a major through fare, a major artery that could have restrict, you know, vital goods or as what we saw happen in Ottawa, where an ambulance couldn't get through what should have taken 10 minutes took 45 and the patient in the ambulance perished. Um, you know, where is the where is the law enforcement line there, or what are the punishments that could be at play for somebody who perhaps thinks they're doing something that is just a simple blocking of a roadway that could have greater consequence? It's a great question because civil disobedience at its core is not coercive. It aims to be dialogic. Now, in the case of the the Ferry Creek protest. Um, you know, it's interesting looking at the, the BC appeals court judgment, where they stressed what was in the public interest. They said the public interest in upholding the rule of law 
is the most dominant interest in a case involving civil disobedience against a private entity. Yeah. Now, the, the problem with that is rule of law, you know, legal philosophers know this is a very loaded term. This is an overused term, and it's, often, it's to some extent an empty slogan. If you look at the old case of Bush v. Gore, both sides were invoking rule of law to defend their position. Mm. And what, what it would have been nice to see the judges reflect on is, is the value for the rule of law in constrained breach of law. So, uh, and, and so, so legal philosophers like, um, like John Rawls, Joseph Raz, people who really think about civil disobedience say that this actually serves a democratic function. Uh, you know, this isn't people engaging in ordinary offending. This is people trying to commit to the democratic process, trying to force people to have conversations about difficult issues, such as how to compete, how to compare indigenous rights against uh, competing views on environmental claims, how to protect uh, sort of what, what is the heart of the public interest. And, and so it's not an improper arrogation of, you know, I ha- I'm going to free ride. I have some license. I'm not going to follow the law when all others are. It's rather we aren't talking about something that's important. And the climate crisis is vitally important. That is uppermost in the public interest. I just love the pragmatic POV that you are bringing to this discussion, Professor, because at the end of the day, the dialogue is what is so vital in all of this, which can get lost in partisan politics and and silos and my team or your team, as opposed to how do we find an answer in the collective. I hope we get an opportunity to speak again. Thank you so much for giving my us some pleasure. of your time today. Just absolutely Thank fantastic. You. 911.